Well, this morning we're continuing our study in the book of Acts, and if you'll turn to Acts chapter 2, we're going to look at the last few verses of that chapter. Very famous passage. Most of you have heard a Bible study on this. It's about church and ministry and what the early church looked like and what they did uh, on the day of Pentecost and shortly thereafter. It's a very exciting passage. It's a passage that I think every church, if they could, would like to emulate in some way. And it's a passage that I would say is not out of reach of any fellowship that's willing to follow God with all of their heart. And so I'd like to begin by reading it, and, uh, and then we'll consider its application to our life this morning. But just to kind of summarize, 3,000 people in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost came to Christ. And now we've got 3,120 on-fire believers who are hungry for the things of the kingdom. And so we find in verse 42 that this is what they did. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Father, we rejoice in being able to fellowship here today, God. And I pray that the teaching of your word would lift us up and encourage us, God. It would inspire us. And Father, by your spirit, that you would uh, breathe into this fellowship all the life that you want it to experience, that we might win this island to Christ, that we might be a testimony to your greatness and your love and your power. And God, even our fellowship itself might be an evangelistic tool for reaching those that have yet to know Jesus Christ. So God, lead us in this time this morning, and we want to say thank you in advance, praying in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. This undoubtedly is one of the high points in the early church. There were actually many high points, but this is undoubtedly one of the first, most significant high points of the church. And I don't know if you had a time in your life uh, like this, but I'd, I want to share with you that when I first came to Christ and went away to school, I had some moments that were very similar to this that I still look back on with fond memories. I just remember being so on fire for Christ and God would meet us in a Bible study and we didn't know anything. You know, I was just like about maybe six months old in the Lord and I was off in San Diego going to school and there were some other Christians in my dorm and we started praying one night and all of a sudden, I don't know what to tell you, but it's like God just met us there in a very powerful way. And we were just so excited and so thrilled to be walking with God. And we were reading the word together all the time. And people started wanting to fellowship with us. And this just spontaneous Bible study started that ended up being three times a week. We skipped lunch every Monday, Wednesday, Friday for about three years in a row. And all we did was we worshiped and we studied the word and hundreds of people came to this study. And, and it was completely unorchestrated by anybody. It wasn't a school thing, it wasn't a church thing, it was a God thing. And this is essentially what's happening here. And many of you have had experiences like that in your walk with God. We don't always have experiences like that. We can't be aiming for an experience. What we're aiming for is Christ. What we're aiming for is his glory. What we're aiming for is his praise. But along the way, he gives us these windows, these experiences, these wonderful times of fellowship. But I think that even though we can't expect to be living the day of Pentecost every week and every day, what we can expect is to have a heart surrendered to God in such a way that the Holy Spirit at a moment's notice can move in any way that he wants because here we are, ready to worship, ready to serve, devoted to the things of the kingdom. And that's what this group was doing. They were devoted. In fact, that's one of the first words in the phrase in this Greek sentence when it talks about what these people were devoted to. And actually in the Greek, it means that they were devoted in a sense of continuing devotion. It's in the present participle form, meaning every day they kept devoting themselves as a pattern of life to the things that we're going to talk about this morning. Now I think about life and all around us, we've got people devoted to all kinds of things. People devoted to their work, to their career, to surfing people devoted to their families, to becoming athletically fit, to helping their kids become athletes. We've got people devoted to, uh, you know, to hobbies and other types of interests. We've got people devoted to all kinds of things. In fact, many of us are devoted to many things. 
I think we're designed to be devoted to something. But these people were unique in the sense that they were devoted to loving God and to loving each other. This last week, I came across a passage in Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 21, and it just is one of those gems that just grabbed my attention. And through the prophet Jeremiah, the Lord says, who is he that will devote himself to being close to me, says the Lord. Isn't that interesting? That phrase isn't anywhere else in the Bible. Who is he or who is she who will devote him or herself to being close to me? I thought that was interesting. What wasn't there? It didn't say devote himself to serving me or devote himself to, to doing great things for me or devote himself to teaching Sunday school or to ushering or greeting or whatever your role might be. But he says, who is the one? I'm looking for people who will devote themselves to being close to me. And the Bible says that over and over, by the way, that God is searching the, the earth. And in Second uh, Chronicles 16.9, it says that the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth, looking to support those whose hearts are completely devoted to him. He wants to support people like that. He wants to do things in the lives of people like that. He wants to bless people like that. He wants to cause people like that to bear fruit because he wants more people like that. And so these people were devoted to God, but they were also devoted to one another in love. In essence, they fulfilled Luke 10, 27, which wasn't even written yet. It says, in response to a, to a teacher of the law's question, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Those two commands of loving God and loving each other were spontaneously, supernaturally coming forth out of these people who simply were filled with the Spirit of God. Nobody taught them how to do this. Nobody told them, okay, first Bible study, love God, love each other. Okay, work on it now. Small groups, everybody gather together, love each other. No, nothing like that. It was the spontaneous fruit of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. They loved God and they loved each other. And that's what we're going to be studying in this text today. The first thing that we find in, in verse 42 that they devoted themselves to, and this word devotion means a steadfast, single-minded fidelity to a certain course of action. I mean, they were just like zeroing in. They had other things happening in their life, but the thing that they were focused on were these four things that we're going to talk about right now. The first is that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. In the, uh, in the Greek, it means doctrine or instruction. It means instruction in the truth of God's word. And so we've got the 120 disciples who had been commanded earlier by God, by Jesus Christ, before his, his death and resurrection. And he said, I want you to go and I want you to make disciples of all nations. And I want you to baptize them in the name of Jesus Christ. And I want you to teach them to obey all of my commands. And I will be with you in this endeavor to the very end of the age. And so now these 120 already know what they're supposed to do with new believers because God has told them through the ministry of Jesus Christ after his resurrection, I want you to teach these disciples to obey my word. So it's important because it's not just teaching them, but it's teaching them to obey the word of God. And so these new 3,000 converts, I mean, how do you, how do you disciple 3,000 people? I don't know. It, it must have been an amazing time but they organized themselves and split these 120 believers up, probably put them in some sort of a small group, probably taught them in a large group as well. We know they went from the temple and then they went in the homes and they taught. They were teaching, teaching, teaching. These people were like, couldn't get enough of God. They were so hungry for the word of God. And so they taught them from the word and they taught them how to obey the word of God. Now, this brings me to a simple application in that there needs to be a hunger in our lives for the word of God. We need to be measuring our life not against the cultural trends or against what the opinions of the world might say or what our neighbors say or what our parents say, um, unless they're giving us godly instruction. But I'm talking about, you know, we're older and our parents are maybe kind of influencing us in a certain way that's not godly. The thing that needs to be our measuring rod needs to be the word of God. We need to be people, men and women, who know the word and are living it out and letting it be our instruction manual for life. It's so fundamental to our spiritual growth that we need to be in the Word on a regular basis. And that's the question I want to have for you. Part of what made this time so vibrant and so exciting and so wonderful is that these people had a voracious appetite for the Word of God. That is one of the marks, by the way, of the filling of the Holy Spirit. 
And I want to pose a question to you, just to reflect on for a moment. How would you rate your hunger for the Word of God on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being the highest? Would it be maybe a 5 or, or is it a 2? Is it an 8? If your level of spiritual hunger for the Word is low, my recommendation to you is to cry out to God and ask Him for a new filling of His Spirit because one of the fruits of someone's life that is filled with God's Spirit is a hunger for the Word. And so we need to be men and women who are in the Word on a daily basis. We need to be studying the Bible, meditating on it, memorizing it, giving ourselves to it, and then teaching it to other people. And one of the things that I'll share with you is that if you are struggling in your walk with the Lord and feel kind of a little bone dry and a little bit bored with your Christian life, what I can tell you is that if you learn how to have an effective quiet time, that will change. And in our fellowship, we teach people how to have an effective quiet time. And if any of you struggle with that, we have a little manual called the 959 that teaches people how to have a meaningful quiet time. Why in the world the church doesn't teach people how to have quiet times, I'll never know, except to say that I didn't teach people how to have a quiet time for the first 10 years of ministry. Because I just told people, you should be in the Word. And, they're like, and I'm thinking they should know how to do this. But I didn't know how to do it. I was never taught how to have a quiet time. I had to kind of learn on my own and read books. And I made a decision. I'm never ever going to let someone that's interested in the Word of God have to learn on their own like I did. It's unnecessary. So if you need to learn how to have a quiet time and would like to learn a method for not only learning yourself but how to teach other people, we can teach you. It takes about an hour, hour and a half. But the thing is, is that we need to be men and women who are hungering for the Word of God and we're not, when we're not hungering, recognizing that something is not right and that we need, it needs to be kind of a wake-up call because the natural overflow of the Spirit's work is this vibrant devotion to the Word of God. And it's the kind of devotion that this Christian group of 3,120 had. We're also told in the second part of verse 20, uh, 42 that they devoted themselves, this passionate single-mindedness, to the fellowship of the saints. It's the word koinonia in Greek. It means association or this intimacy, this communication, this sharing in and among ourselves of something that we hold in common. And of course, what this new church, this fledgling church was holding in common was the born-again experience. They were holding in common the ministry of the Holy Spirit. They were holding in common the Word of God. They were holding in common uh, this, this new life in Christ being transitioned from darkness to, to light, from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of God. And it was a, an exciting, vibrant, exhilarating time for these people. And as a result, they devoted themselves to the fellowship, the gathering together, this communion with the saints of God. The Apostle John in, in 1 John 1.3 tells us what's necessary for this fellowship to take place. He said in, to, the, uh, to the early church, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Son and with the Father. And so we have this fellowship that's based on the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when a person enters into that, they then can experience this vibrant fellowship. The fellowship doesn't happen apart from Christ. That's the foundation. And the, the relationship with Christ doesn't happen without the gospel of Jesus Christ, that born-again experience. But when that happens, something dynamic takes place. So we've got 3,000 virtual strangers to each other. These people were from all over the Middle East and all over Asia Minor. They were from all over the known world at that time. They'd come for the Feast of, of Pentecost. They get there. They, they see this phenomena, this divine appointment of God with the Holy Spirit coming down as Jesus predicted and anointing and coming upon this group of 120 believers who then speak in at least 17 different languages that we have recorded for us in the, in the opening chapter of Acts, second chapter. And the people are just blown away and they hear them declaring the praises of God. And they are astonished. And they hear the gospel preached by, by Peter and they respond. And so we've got 3,000 people who virtually don't even know each other probably don't have very much in common except they're there for the day of Pentecost and they're Jewish. And they come and they come to worship, but all of a sudden, this born-again experience, this new life in Christ, ushers them in to fellowship that they've never, ever experienced before. This friendship that they have with people that they've never even met. Do you understand that this explains how, on a Sunday like today, we can meet people that have never been in this church before, and if they're born-again believers, we can share 
deeply. We can be transparent with each other. We can be honest about our weaknesses and our struggles. We can pray for each other. And within five or 10 minutes, we can leave as friends. And there's this connection because we have something in common. And that commonness, of course, is the work of God in our lives. Now, this fellowship, by the way, is part of what made the church so powerful in its evangelism. You know, sometimes there are things that I think that are very underrated and never spoken of when it comes to evangelism. You know, you go to an evangelism seminar and what do they do? They teach you a method usually. You know, it's the four, four spiritual laws or the five steps or the, the Romans road or they teach you something like that. Can I mention two things that I think are completely off the radar screen for evangelism seminars and someday I'm going to teach one and I'm going to use these as topics? You know what's one of the best evangelism uh, uh, tools that we've got at our disposal is a good marriage. A good marriage is a powerful witness in a fallen world where very few people have good marriages. So simply, if you have a godly, Christ-centered marriage, that is going to speak volumes to people around you who don't know the Lord. That's going to draw their attention. They're going to stand up and take notice when they see a good marriage. But do you know another thing that draws the unbeliever's attention? A church that loves each other. A church that really fellowships, this koinonia, this, this intimate bond of fellowship. They stand up and they take notice of a church that loves its own. They watch that. Why? Because they're hungering for some sort of association. That's why you have clubs and teams and organizations. Because people, I believe, are trying to fill a God-given need for this kind of koinonia. And as close as they can get is paddling with a club or being on some sort of a bike team or being on some sort of a, you know, a chess club or something like that. You know, they're looking for some avenue to have some connection, but it always falls short of the intimacy of koinonia because the bond is not, ne it's never going to be as strong as it is with the people of God and the word of God. And this, by the way, is why Satan's very strategic plan for the church is to disrupt that koinonia. How does he do it? Well, he does it by enticing the church to grumble, or to complain. And by the way, none of you ever do these things, I know. It never happens. We, you, you're really, I'm serious, you're such a wonderful church. I, I love being the pastor of this church. But I know that sometimes we fall into these things. Sometimes uh, gossiping, maybe slandering a person, maybe holding a grudge, maybe letting a root of bitterness come into our hearts, letting some, some sin and some offenses go unreconciled for months, sometimes years at a time. And that's Satan's strategy to disrupt. Why would that disrupt? Because these things grieve the Spirit of God. And when the Spirit of God is sufficiently grieved over a long enough period of time, we're going to see a, a, a decrease in his activity. And boy, when the Spirit's activity decreases, we're in a world of hurt as a church. Because it was the Spirit's work in this early church that made it so exciting. Listen to what, um, what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness and rage and anger, brawling and slander along with every form of malice. Now he's talking to the church. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. This is the call of the church, this kind of koinonia. We have to be diligent about maintaining this kind of fellowship doesn't just happen on its own. We've got to be vigilant. We have to discipline ourselves for godliness. We can't let things go. And so my encouragement to you, if anyone is struggling with something uh, in the church or with another believer in another church or anything like that, one of the most important things that we need to do is to close the loop on that and take care of that and to be reconciled. As far as our part is, we need to be at peace with all people. In all that we do, we need to make every effort to be at peace and to maintain the unity. Why? Because the unity of the church is one of the most evangelistic strategies that God has. Josephus, the, the great Jewish historian who was not a believer, by the way, but lived in the time of Christ and after his death and resurrection and through the early church, he said this about the early church. He, he was astonished and he said, see how they love one another. That was, what, that was evangelistic for Josephus, was to see the love that the church had for each other. And by the way, if you struggle with love, let me give you the remedy that the Bible speaks of and that uh, an author, William McElroy, uh, from years past, said about how to deal with 
a broken relationship, he said nothing can so quickly cancel the frictions of life as prayer. If you find yourself growing angry at someone, pray for him. Anger cannot live in an atmosphere of prayer. If you want to be free from anger and from bitterness and from wounds, begin to pray for the person that's brought the offense in your life. I don't have time to talk about the other aspects of what the Bible teaches, but if you know you've offended somebody, you're obligated by Scripture to go to that person that you've offended and make it right. And if you've been offended, you are obligated by Scripture to go. Why? Because God wants you to work hard at maintaining the unity of the body of Christ because we were designed for this incredible, intense, exhilarating koinonia. And the, the, uh, the fruit of that is evangelism. The third thing that this group devoted themselves to was the breaking of bread. I love this part, eating. You know, they love to get together and eat. And we are like famous at Calvary Chapel for eating. They, that's why they call us Calorie Chapel, where the sheep love to eat. You know, we just love to get together and have barbecues and potlucks. And I love local food, you know. So I love when we have like our luau's and these are just dynamic, wonderful times of connecting. And they did the same thing in the early church. We're going to have communion here in a few minutes. But, but in the early church, they didn't have it like we did. It was at the end of a meal that they had it. They didn't come and, you know, uh, you know have it all, the bread all broken up like this and the little cups and everything. It was, it was much more informal. And yet it was, a, it was the end of the meal. And so oftentimes, and I believe in the early church, probably at the end of almost every meal, they would, they would share communion. And they would remember the, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and proclaim his coming, as the Bible says in 1 Corinthians, until he arrives. And so the, why, why is this issue of the Lord's Supper so important? I'll tell you why. Because it's our finish line. It's a reminder of our, our destiny. It's a reminder of our citizenship. It's a reminder of who we really are in the heavenly realm. Why is that important? Well, because the world tends to draw our devotion away to other things. But communion sets it right back in order and tells us what really matters, what really counts, and that Jesus is coming back. And so every day I think to myself, self, Jesus could be coming back today. Can you live one more day for Christ? And, and I say, yeah, I can. I have the strength for that. Don't you guys have the strength for today to live for Jesus? Yes or no? Yes. Yeah, we do. Now, I don't know how I'm going to do in three months from now. I can't project. If I, if I project out there, I think, I'm tired. I don't know if I can keep this pace up sometimes. But do I have enough for today? Absolutely. And God says, I'll give you strength for today. And he does. And so we need to be people who are, who are remembering the Lord and his coming and the finish line, that tape is out in front of us every single day because we need to keep our focus on the things that matter to God. We need to be men and women who are devoted to becoming close to God and to his son, Jesus Christ, and in a relationship uh, with the Holy Spirit. They also devoted themselves to prayer. Now, without question, the early church was marked by prayer. I mean, the church was a praying church. We have at least 10 uh, instances in the book of Acts when the church gathered for cor corporate prayer. And boy, these people prayed. You know, when we pray, sometimes when we get together as a church or as you get together as believers, We'll go around the circle once and then, then the last person closes and then we're done, you know? The idea of continuing is like, what? We're going around again? You know, <laughs> this, we've been praying for 15 minutes already, you know? But the early church, man, they were devoted to prayer. For them, it was, it was part of the koinonia. It was part of the shared experience. It was part of their passion for God. It was a part of their, the thrill of having immediate access to God, remembering that these people had only been taught their whole life that the priest was the access point. But to have direct access to God was phenomenal and they took advantage of it. And they prayed a lot. That's why Paul tells us in three different places about prayer and the importance of it. He says, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. That's in Colossians chapter four, verse two. Romans 12, 12, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction and faithful in prayer. And then Ephesians 6, 18, Pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. And with this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for the saints. Does it begin to make sense more why the Bible teaches us in 1 Thessalonians that we are to pray continually without ceasing? 
It's just this intimacy with God. It's our connection with the Father. It's our, he provides guidance for us and insight and wisdom and all of these things that we need on a moment-to-moment basis. God will give us if we'll simply ask. But more than anything, God wants what Jeremiah recorded for us in, verse, in chapter 30, verse 21. Who is he that will devote him or herself to drawing close to me? See, prayer ultimately is about relationship with God. And so God is calling the church and this early church, man, they were devoted to prayer. Let me read a couple of quotes from some, some saints of the past that spoke of prayer. The first one is from S.D. Gordon. Gordon was the, um, was the founder of Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary where I went to seminary. He was the Gordon half of Gordon-Conwell and it was a, a school that he, uh, uh, that he uh, founded with the help of Billy Graham. But he says about prayer, he says, the great people of earth are the people who pray. I don't mean those who talk about prayer, nor those who say they believe in prayer, nor yet those who can explain or teach on prayer, but I mean those who actually pray. Here's another one by E.M. Bounds. He wrote many books on prayer. What the church needs today is not more or better machinery, not new organizations or more and novel methods, but men whom the Holy Ghost can use, men of prayer, men mighty in prayer. The Holy Ghost doesn't flow through methods, but through men. He does not come on machinery, but on men. He does not anoint plans, but men. Men, and I would also say women, of prayer. So we need to be people of prayer. We can't count on, you know, strategy for the church. I think that's hurt the church. I think organization is good, but if the strategy leaves the ministry of the Holy Spirit out, we are in a world of hurt. And we may be guilty of what happens in some fellowships and even happened in the Old Testament is the Spirit of the Lord lifted from the temple and left and they kept worshiping week after week after he was gone. So we need to be people who are people of prayer. Samuel Chaddock said this, the one concern of the devil is to keep Christians from praying. He fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, and prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil, mocks at our wisdom, but he trembles when we pray. I love that. (laughs) Satan trembles when the churches pray. So these are the four things that the church devoted themselves to. Unorchestrated, unorganized, but it was their heart cry. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to the fellowship of believers. They devoted themselves to a reminder through the Lord's Supper of their value and their condition and their citizenship and their future. And then they devoted themselves to corporate prayer. I would suggest that you cannot grow without these four components taking place in your life. But I would also say that you can't help but grow if these are a part of your life. Well, the atmosphere in the church as a result of these things was was pretty awe-inspiring. In fact, it says in verse 43 that everyone was filled with awe. The word in the Greek is phobos, where we get our word phobia from. So claustrophobia, the fear of tight places, agoraphobia, the fear of crowds, uh, hydrophobia, the fear of water, and then, of course, howlyphobia, the fear of white men. And um, sometimes the best way to, <laughs> to address those fears is to be confronted by that thing all the time. And so that's why I came to Kauai. I, you know, I know that you guys realize that I have, uh, I'm multicultural, multinational, but I do have a little bit of Caucasian in me. And so... Um, uh, but God is using me, you know, to kind of break down some walls of, of uh, holophobia on the island. But this church had a fear, but it wasn't theophobia, theos meaning God, but it was this intense respect and honor of God. I, I like the word for uh, the definition for fear that says a wholesome dread of displeasing God. It's wholesome, but it's also a dread of displeasing or dishonoring God. And and as the unbelieving world watched the church function as it was designed to under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the unbelievers were like blown away. This isn't like any temple worship we've ever been to. Our stuff has been kind of dull and boring and humdrum and lifeless. And they're watching the early church and they're astonished And it says that everyone, including the unbelievers, they were in awe. The believers were in awe. They were like, I can't believe this. This is crazy. This is so wonderful. And the unbelievers were going, this is crazy. This is, I think it's wonderful, but we're not quite sure what to make of this. But this is something we've never seen before. And they were in awe. I think that that's exactly what should happen to the unbelievers around any church. 
any association. They should look at it and just be astonished. But I think what's happened in the church today is that there's not astonishment, but there's derision. There's disrespect. When you talk about church today to an unbeliever, they talk about hypocrites, right? Isn't this what it always, a lot of times comes up? And they talk about uh, the lack of authenticity, the lack of genuineness, the, 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 the idea that people speak one thing and live another thing in the community, in their business life, in their moral life, in their character, in their family life. This has been a source of huge disruption and huge harm to the evangelistic effort of the church. And so the early church, what we find them doing is that they are experiencing this new life in Christ, and it's astonishing, it's awe-inspiring to the unbelievers around them. And the, the result is that we're going to see at the end of this chapter that like people just kept coming to Christ and coming to Christ and coming to Christ and coming to Christ. Why? Because they saw something living, alive, something that they, they were longing for. And I think one of, the, one of the problems with the church today is that we are so passive about our Christian life. We're so compromised in so many areas of our own lives. And it's not uncommon to see Christians getting divorced, Christians having babies out of wedlock, Christians uh, being dishonest in their business practices, Christians having adulterous affairs. And it's so common that the unbelieving world actually is not any, any worse off than sometimes the church is. The divorce rate with the church is exactly what it is in the unbelieving world. Do you think that impresses them? Do you think it impresses them when they find out that, that, that a pastor runs off with his secretary? What kind of impact does that have on an unbelieving community when that happens? And it happens all the time. It's happening all over the country. I think the church has become too passive and complacent about the issues of holiness. And I want to call you and challenge you that one of the most powerful forms of evangelism is the church simply being the church. The church being what God designed the church to be and for the people in the church to live a life of passionate pursuit of God and not compromising, not saying, oh, well, God will forgive in our minds as we go into the next affair or into the next business deal that we know is ungodly and not right, to the next situation with our spouse where we're abusive or inappropriate. All these things are not right. And so the early church, because there was this, this involvement of really ultimately it comes down to the ministry of the Holy Spirit, they were inspired to live lives that were worthy of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the result is that the people stood up and took notice. It also tells us that many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. We find that happening again in Acts chapter 5. And I want to comment on this briefly because we don't see a lot of the miraculous happening as much as what we see in the New Testament. We don't see the blind being healed all the time. We don't see the dead being raised. We don't see some of these things as often. I say as often because it does happen. But you have to remember that these miraculous signs were to attest to the validity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were affirming works of God to put his stamp of approval on the message of the gospel with unbelievers who had never heard this before. And so what we find is that once that message is proclaimed and clearly understood in a culture or in a, in a community of people, oftentimes we find those miracles begin to kind of subside and die down. It doesn't mean that they don't happen. But what happens now is that we see people on TV or these big tent revivals where, where you're gathering together to have these healing services when in the Bible you never have Christians gathering together for healing services. What you have is God healing unbelievers to attest to the power and validity of the gospel of Jesus Christ and then the people come to Christ and they don't keep healing them over and over. People don't live forever, but it's to simply attest to the power of the gospel. That, by the way, is why you see so many things like this happening in third world countries where people have never even heard the name of Jesus. There's no power in the name because they, they don't even know the name. And so God will use missionaries to heal the sick and to raise the dead and to heal the blind and to give capacity and strength to the lame. And it happens. All over the world it's happening. But the disciples in these early days were seeing so much of it occurring because it was coming to a group of people that were doubtful about the message of the gospel. And so they were healing in remarkable ways. And the Bible says in verse 44 that there was unity in the body and all the believers were together. It means unanimous with one accord and one mind. Now, if you've been in the church any length of time, you've heard a lot of talk about unity. I am almost up to here with that 
to be honest with you. Unity, unity, unity. We need to link arms. We need to gather together. We need to, we need to you know, powwow together. All these different denominations, including, you know, Mormons and Jehovah's Witness and, and Catholics that don't believe in salvation by faith alone for salvation in Christ. You, you, there's this real push, even among pastors, to have unity at any expense, as if unity was the goal. And I want to read a quote to you from Charles Spurgeon, who lived in the 1800s. Great preacher. He was called the Prince of Preachers. Listen to what he says about this kind of of unity at all costs. He says, such teaching is false. It's reckless and dangerous. Truth alone must determine our alignments. Truth comes before unity. Unity without truth is hazardous. Our Lord's Prayer in John 17, which was all about unity, must be read in its full context. Look at verse 17. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Only those sanctified through the word can become one in Christ. To teach otherwise is to betray the gospel. And in all honesty, I see this happening on a regular basis, not only sometimes here on Kauai, but worldwide, where there's this effort to get unity. And we see it in the news, you know, Islam's getting together with the Jews and the Jews getting, Jewish people getting together with the Catholics and the Catholics getting together with the Protestants. Let's all be one. Let's all be friends. We're not all that different, really. That's not true. We are different. And we need to let our unity be based not on some warm, fuzzy feeling as we sing Kumbaya together and sway, but it comes as a result of the truth of the gospel. That's what brings unity. Probably the simplest illustration I can give for this is pianos. I remember years ago, growing up in a very musical family, uh, we had to go to recitals all the time, and to, to, we had season tickets to symphony. And so, you know, here I'd be like five years old, and I'm sitting through these three-hour-long things. I'm just like, you know, and I'd get spanked if I fell asleep. But I remember one time, uh, <laughs> I'm recovering, I'm in counseling, but I'm getting better. Um, I remember this one time that they had this piano recital with like 25 pianos on stage. And, you know, how do you get 25 pianos to be in tune? Do you tune them to each other? No. You tune each piano to a singular tuning fork. And that tuning fork becomes the measuring rod for each piano. When each piano is in tune with that tuning fork, all the pianos wondrously, marvelously, are in tune with each other. The way that the body of Christ gets unity is being in tune, not trying to figure out, well, what do you believe in? How can I get in tune with you? No, we'll never get in tune. What we need to do is to be in tune to what the Bible says, to the word of God, what God says tune is. We need to find out what God says about truth. When we enter that truth, then we find ourselves miraculously in unity with people that we've never even met before until today. And all of a sudden, hey, we're, we're singing the same song and we're in the same key. Isn't that amazing? But that's because we're tuned to the word of God. So these people were we're experiencing this incredible unity that was coming as a result of the teaching and the fellowship and, the, and the, the worship and the prayer and all these things were taking place. They were getting solid doctrine. And then it tells us something amazing in verse 45, that all the believers had everything in common and they sold their possessions and goods and they gave to anyone as he had need. When I was in seminary, I had a, um, a professor of social justice I don't know how this guy got on this faculty. He didn't last long. He'd think he was gone the year after I left. But he taught from this passage and used this passage as a proof text for communism and socialism as the ideal for government in the world. And I'm just like, you've got to be kidding me. I mean, I debated this guy practically every class about this whole issue because this text does not teach socialism and it doesn't teach communism. Now, let me tell you why. Because... There, there are basically five reasons. Number one is that these people shared common things in a temporary way. It was temporary. Why was it temporary? Why was the need even there? Well, because 3,000 people came to Christ, and if you were a Jew at that time and traded sides like that, in essence, from Judaism to this new way called the way, it wasn't even called Christianity at the time, uh, but it was called the way, if, if you went over there, you were like, hey, don't talk to us again. You're out. You're, you're disowned. You, I, I never knew you. You're as if you were not born. People lost their jobs. People lost their customer base if they had businesses. People lost their homes. People lost their, their, their participation in their entire life and community. And many people, because of that, were basically homeless without an income and didn't have any resources at all that were left. 
So what the body of Christ did is they stood up to the plate and they said, we've got an emergency here. But what I love about this is that we don't see any orchestration of some, you know, okay, operation relief, okay? We don't see anything like that. We don't see a committee set up to try to organize all this. What we see is we see the body of Christ because they're filled with the Spirit, filled with this enormous sense of love for God and love for each other, that they simply start taking care of each other. That's not communism. That's not socialism. That's agape love. That's all that is. And it was temporary because this didn't go on indefinitely. It was a very strategic time in the church's history. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, the command to the rich young ruler isn't for everyone. It doesn't mean that everyone should go out and sell everything they have and give it to the poor and go live at Anini. It doesn't say that. It says in, the, in this context that there was a great need and the church of their own volition. It wasn't forced. It wasn't mandated. It wasn't dictated. It wasn't a part of the new church government. It was simply their heart cry to bless their brothers and sisters. And so it took place spontaneously. It was done, uh, as far as we know, directly from the giver to the, the one that received the gift. It wasn't through the church. It wasn't some collective pot that said, okay, everybody, we're taking an offering. No, the people in the church just saw, hey, you have a need? I, I can meet that. I remember when I was, um, I'd been a Christian about two or three years and I was helping to actually teach a Bible study. I don't know how that happens. You know, God uh, had, had me teaching when I was so young in the Lord myself. But I'm, we're having this Bible study at our church and the Lord kind of started working in the fellowship and, and uh, Pastor Bill, who's a pastor that I went to uh, uh, Mississippi with on this trip, began to kind of share with the people. He just felt led to have the, the church and we started ministering together. If anyone has a need, we just feel like, hey, make it known and we'll see what God will do. So this woman says, you know what, I, I just, I have to tell you, I've just had this on my heart. I didn't know we were going to even be talking about this, but I don't have a bed and I've been looking for a bed. This guy in the corner says, I can't believe it. I've got a bed. I've got a king-size bed. It's almost brand new. I was going to sell it. I didn't even know what to do with it. It's yours. And we just all were like, whoa, you know, and then... Somebody else didn't have money for their electric bill and they, they started kind of sharing some of their struggles. And right there on the spot, it was taken care of. And for about a good half an hour, 35, 40 minutes, the body of Christ just shared needs and met them. No organization, no big pot, nothing like that. I'm telling you, we left that place and we felt a touch of the early church. That's what this church was experiencing. And it was a wondrous thing. And of course, it's still there for us today because the Bible says if anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? So it's still the mandate of the church to take care of its own. And one of the things that I would challenge you to pray about and think about as a church is to not see a need and say, hmm, we should call Pastor Bob and see how much money's in the benevolence fund. Maybe it's God speaking to you. He let you be aware of the need Maybe God is giving you the privilege of giving to that need and oftentimes giving it secretly, just blessing people, not organized, not structured. Do you, I don't want to, honestly, I don't want to do church that way. I, I don't mind our church. Our church meets a, lot, meets a lot of needs in the community. When people have problems and difficulties, we want to step up to the plate and help. But nothing's more exciting. See, if I give that money, I'm not giving what God has given me. I'm giving what you've given God but you aren't getting the blessing of seeing how that's used. But when you give to one another, all of a sudden it's like, wow, the Lord's using me. God used me. I got to be a part of his miraculous work. I got to be a part directly, not with any intermediaries, not with a group or an organization or a fund, but I got to help. I got to do it. And that's an honor and a privilege and so I'd really encourage you to think in terms of using your gifts and the resources that God has given you uh, to be a blessing. You've been entrusted and stewarded with these gifts and resources. And as you do this, it's just, a, it's a wonderful thing. I, I don't have time to talk about it, but sometimes my kids blow me away. Well, I guess I'm talking about it. Okay, so my kids blow me away. And they're like, they're like I want to give, you know, $100 to Katrina. To, and I'm thinking, you want to give what? A hundred bucks? And I'm thinking in my mind, why don't you give 10, you know? You don't have that much. And I, don't, I keep this to myself because I know I'm wrong and they're right. And, and well, if you want to give 100, you give 100. They want to give their toys away to their friends. It's like, we just got that for you. I'm thinking this in my mind. We just got that. It's only about three months old. I know, but he doesn't have one and I'd like to give it to him. I'm just like, okay. My kids are teaching me to be generous. 
because I'm seeing this in my kids. It's this natural work of God in their lives and I think in the lives of believers. So it's a really wonderful thing to be able to give that way. Verse 46 tells us that they, they really enjoyed being together. You couldn't keep these people apart. They were in the temple day after day and it says that they went from house to house. I mean, it's just like, can you imagine, okay, we met at church every single day. Now, this was a very unique time People, many of them had already lost their jobs. They were out of town visitors. They were there for like a week. They just wanted to meet together. So we're not talking about that being normative for the church. But just let's imagine that we met in church every day for like two or three hours and did nothing but teach and worship and, and enjoy fellowship. And then afterwards, we all said, hey, let's go over to this guy's house. And so we all say, yeah, let's go over. So da, 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 we go over there and we start, no food. Okay, somebody goes and gets barbecue. This is real local style, by the way. Pretty soon you're bringing food and, and you're there till like 11 o'clock at night. And then, you, and then somebody says, are we, are we meeting at church again tomorrow? And, and, you know, a few of us say, well, would you like to? And everybody says, yeah. You know, I mean, this is the kind of excitement that was in the church. It's not normative for the church today. And, and, you know, we can't live this way because we have to take care of providing an income for ourselves and our families and everything. But I'm just letting you know that this was the kind of intensity that the early church was experiencing. And so they were praising God together and they were enjoying fellowship together. And the result in verse 47 is powerful. The fruit of the early church, they enjoyed the favor of all the people. The word in the Greek is charis, where we get our word grace from. Grace, favor, benefit, the people in the community were giving them their favor. They got the stamp of approval from unbelievers. It doesn't say that they all believed in the gospel. It doesn't say they all believed the message of the gospel. It doesn't say that they all believed in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. What it says is that they had favor. They looked at them and said, you know, we may not agree with everything, but we've never seen anything like this. And this is good for the community. This is good for our families. This is good all the way around. And we admire you. At least you're living what you speak. At least you are living what you have taught. And when unbelievers see this kind of a lifestyle, I'm telling you, people are going to come to Christ. We won't have to go knocking on doors. If people see this kind of fellowship in just this church, and there are many churches on this island, but let's say just our church, because I'm not the pastor of these other churches, but let's say just our fellowship began to really live this out, people would be knocking this place down trying to get in. Why? Because people want a fulfilling life. People want to have love. People want to be accepted. People want to have a mission. People want to live a life of value and courage and power. People want to know God ultimately. But they're going to come to a place that they see it evidenced lock, stock, and barrel. It can't be just some of us. All of us have got to live this way. We have a mandate. We are called to live this kind of a life worthy of God. Well, the early church was living it that way. Very powerful time. And the result was is that the Lord added to their numbers daily those that were being saved. This is God's prescription for church growth. Not a strategy, not a plan, not five steps, not 10 steps, not a film and video series that you have to pay $99 to go be a part of, not a conference that you have to attend somewhere. It's simply the spirit-filled life. It's a life of hunger for God. It's a life of love for God. It's a life of love for others. And when it goes, it explodes and God can do anything he wants. That's God's prescription for church growth. But God isn't so much interested in church growth like we are. We think about numbers and people and bodies and buildings. God is thinking about the world. He's thinking about filling his kingdom with worshipers. The only way worshipers are going to come in is if they see worship. The only way God lovers are going to come in is if they see God lovers. The only way that, that people that are devoted to Christ are going to be able to affect others is if they're actually devoted to Christ. We have a calling. We got the finish line in front of us. We have to be careful not to devote ourselves to lesser things. And the world and our flesh and Satan are constantly enticing us to lesser lives, to lesser goals, to lesser privileges, to lesser honors. Don't buy into it, but give yourselves to devoting yourselves with single-minded passion for the things of the kingdom of God. And if you're willing to do that, hang on, because you will begin to experience the abundant life that God has called us to. 
And once you experience it and taste it, you will never in a million years want to go back to what you had before. Are you in for it? Do you want it? Then you just need to ask. Surrender your life to the Holy Spirit. Cry out to him and say, do it again. And then simply be faithful. Don't worry about the experience. Don't worry about whether it's happening just like the early church. Give yourselves to the things that the early church was giving themselves to and just leave the rest up to God. And God will work. God will move. God will glorify his name in his church. Father, we thank you for this time this morning. And oh, what a thrill to be here. <laughs> I taught this last night and I'm just as excited about it this morning, if not more so. And Lord, we just want to say, Father, we are here. We are waiting. We are available. God, forgive us for making other things our passion. God, forgive us for substituting things of the world and hobbies and crafts and family and children and our vocation and our, our houses and our, our plans for the future and our vacations and our dreams. Forgive us for placing such an emphasis on these things and having that hollow experience of what you intended to be abundant life. And God, I pray that you'd return us to what we were designed to experience. And that is a life devoted to drawing close to you, a life devoted to the study and enjoyment of your word, a life devoted to koinonia at its very best, a life devoted to remembering our citizenship is in heaven as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, and a life devoted to prayer as we live lives of dependence and lives of complete, absolute surrender to you, admitting, as um, as, uh, 2 Chronicles tells us, Lord, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Living that day-to-day divine appointment from a divine appointment to next divine appointment experience that just makes life so exciting, so unpredictable, so wonderful. God, I pray that you'd raise the church up again. And God, that you would touch each heart here and cause us to look to you and cause us to want what you've offered to us by the power of your spirit that we might not only be born again, but that we might be filled, led, and guided by your spirit. God, let us experience the fullness of what you've called the church to be and the fruit, it will come. We thank you for this time this morning in Jesus' name, amen.